This is Sunday Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. With me is Heim Goodman-Strauss. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Heim. He's a math professor at the University of Arkansas. Several weeks ago, you started a problem about dumb robots. Do you remember right. this? I left people hanging. Yes, you did, me. myself included. We want the answer to the dumb robots. Okay. Well, I wasn't being quite as bad as it seems. Okay. You'll see that this ties into something else that hmm, we This is the taking. teacher in you, isn't it? Yeah. We've been setting this up for a long time. What I recall about the dumb robots mm -hmm. is there is this long line of mm -hmm. numbers. I like to think of it as this infinite ruler mm -hmm. with numbers. Two robots that I like to picture as R2-D2. <laughs> Two R2-D2-looking robots parachute down onto the number line. Uh-huh. The goal... And is, then they drop their parachutes. And they drop their parachutes. And these are very dumb robots, so they can only have a very limited amount of information in their, their right. brains. Right. They can only follow very limited kinds of instructions. They have a list of instructions, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then the kinds of instructions are very simple. They can go left one space. Instruction six might be go right one space. Instruction eight might be if you're standing on a parachute, go to instruction seven. Instruction seven might be go to instruction three. And that's it. Those very, whole, very basic. Very basic. And they can only have a finite number of these instructions. And that's really all they can do. They can't store any memory beyond this or anything at all. And the goal was... Get them to knock into each other. Get them to knock into each other. It's possible. Okay. What are the instructions? Well, we got a bunch of great answers. So... Um, Is there just one answer? Or? Oh, I think there's probably okay. lots. One answer that we got a lot of variations on goes like this. Now, it's a little... It's kind of tedious out loud. It's easier to see if you were reading mm -hmm. this. But um, basically, there's the instructions are in two chunks. And the first chunk goes, go left, go left, go right. And then check to see if you're standing on a parachute. And if you're not, then you go to the first instruction again. So you go left, go left, go right, check. And if you're not, go left, go left, go right. So you're moving left. Yeah. It takes three moves to move right. one to the left. Right. And actually a little longer if you really count all the other stuff. And then the other chunk of instructions, so if you do stand on a parachute, then you go to the other chunk of instructions, which are just go left, repeat, go left, repeat, and so forth. So the effect is, is that you, both robots are sort of moving to the left slowly, and then as soon as one of them hits a parachute, what well, could only have been the other robot's parachute, right. then it starts to move left quickly, oh. and then it collides. So basically, you have to give this very very basic set of rules that yeah. don't really have that many different steps. That's right. The key is just cycling back at the proper That's time right. to this other basic. What's amazing, though, is even with this very simple setup, you can devise uh, procedures that you really cannot tell what's going to happen. That is, again, uh, what we were talking about last week with the halting problem. Incredibly, and this was such... This is why it took us so long to get around to talking about mm -hmm. this, is that the dumb robots problem is, in fact... Alan Turing's model of computation. So last week we talked about Alan Turing and some of his ideas about what could or couldn't be comp computed. In fact, um, something almost like the dumb robots, any computation at all can be encapsulated in this very simple scheme. What is it? Well, you have a, a number line or a ruler, as you said, mm -hmm. and you have a very dumb robot that's just following the same kind of idiotic instructions but maybe a very long list of them. And, and with one, uh, one variation, it can also pick up parachutes and put parachutes down. That's it. So it's, the, the instructions are um, move one to the left, move one to the right. Um, if you're standing on a parachute, go to instruction whatever. If you're standing on a parachute, 
pick up, pick it up. Um, if you're not standing on a parachute, put a parachute down. That's about it. And um, amazingly, any kind of computer program can be encoded in this kind of scheme. It's incredible. For example, you know, Mac OS X, you could actually program as a robot doing, the dumb robot doing this. Of course, the list of instructions would be astronomically right. long. But um, but it but so this is like the core. This is the the very bottom of the building block for well, computer this, programming. In a real sense, not not in any real practical sense. Right. But what Turing was trying to do was come up with something that was so simple that you could actually prove things about it. Like if you look at a real computer, it's so complex. There's so many different kinds of things that it can do that it's really hard to understand what, what really is happening. So his idea was, well, instead of having a very powerful machine that's easy to work with, we'll have a very simple machine that, well, it's going to be easy to say things about it and prove things about it. It's totally inefficient in terms of any practical um, ability to carry out any comp kind of computation. But it can capture everything that a more complex, more powerful machine, seemingly more powerful machine can do. Here's how to think about it. So um, imagine carrying out a calculation like multiplying two to two 10-digit numbers with long multiplication. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly the kind of computation that, you know, a computer might... Right, 100,465 <laughs> oh, times... Hang on, 100. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I said. Okay, Just, okay, you know, right. Uh, times 98,462. Okay. Now, if you put that into even a $10 computer anymore... I'm just sure. gonna spit it out like that. Well, let's think about how we would do this by hand, because okay. presumably we can compute this by right. hand, and all the computers doing in yeah. some sense. Apparently, for years, people did this by hand. Apparently, <laughs> yes. they used to. So, uh, those of us above a certain age, yes. I don't know. They surely still teach this, but anyway, I don't know. Um, you write out the two numbers, right? And right. You make this little tableau, like you have a little grid of possible places to fill stuff in, and you first, you know, multiply. Well, you, you start on the what? You start on the. Right, and then yeah. you just start going. And uh, by this time, I've forgotten the numbers that we said, but say you multiply the three times the two, and you write down the answer, and you carry possibly. And then you just go in working along. Now every bottom one to every top now one. There's a, there's a well-defined procedure that we're following. We, just, we don't really have to know very much at any given time. We just have to remember sort of where we are in the problem mm -hmm. and what kind of step we're doing, that we're in the middle of carrying or we're in the middle of... Or you're yeah. starting over on this tan, so you put a that, zero. That kind of thing. And so you could actually write down a very explicit sure. list of instructions. It would be tedious to follow, but this is actually how we were taught this, in effect, mm -hmm. when we were, uh, whatever grade that was. So um, basically a dumb robot that could move around on a piece of paper and write digits and erase things possibly would be able to carry this kind of a thing out, right? Right. You just program in a bunch of instructions like I'm in the middle of carrying and mm -hmm. now I'm going to do this and so on. Well, having a similar kind of a robot working on a strip of paper can do just anything that you can do on a square grid because all you have to do is um, take your square grid and cut it into a bunch of strips and glue them together end to end, maybe with a special marking that says where, you know, where the strip is a new line on the grid. If you actually look at a text file on the computer. It looks like it's a, like on a piece of paper on the screen, but if you actually open up the file the way it's represented in the computer, it's just a long string of symbols with carriage return markers in there. So having things on a strip is really no less powerful than having things on a, sure. on a tableau. Okay. Well, we're 
now what about do we really need all these digits, uh, zero through nine, and maybe some letters, A through Z? Well, no, we can represent everything with zeros and ones. That's actually the way the real computer works. So there's no need for having so many symbols. Two symbols will be enough. Well, that's actually it. The Turing machine is a dumb robot. The parachutes are ones. No mm -hmm. parachutes are zeros. And all it's doing is following some simple instructions. So you have this really infinite amount of combinations. Uh, on the tape, right? The, the but they all they, they all come from a source of finite possible instructions because uh, you can have different. There's a finite list. There's a finite list of instruction of finite kinds of inst right. instructions you can use, but you can combine can, them in all kinds of to ways. come up with an infinite amount Number of programs. Of, uh, exactly, and that's exactly where all the power comes from. That's exactly right. Um, it's like baseball. You've got so. well. You've got a certain number of rules. You've got the rule book, and that's all. Those are all the rules you need. But no baseball game is the same. I don't know about that. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, now here's one of these digressions. But, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but in terms of but but a baseball game is finite, isn't it? In the sense that there's only a finite number of statistical things that can occur. Oh no like, no, no, no no no. Well well you know, yes like and no. This batter hits and that batter. No, but there's a vast number of possible baseball games, but there's only there's still finitely many. Well, but somebody's going to write in and prove that there are infinitely many baseball games if we use this. Well, as they should, because I'm going to stick to my guns here. No, you've got you've got the rule book, and this obviously right. isn't going to make it on the air, but you've got the rule book. Uh -huh. Three strikes, you're out. Four balls, take your base. Hit by the pitch, you take your base. Three outs, the innings over. Nine innings, unless you're tied, and you keep going. But the different things that can happen in a baseball game are infinite. I don't know if I agree. There's only finitely many lineups. Sure. Well, well, yes, but, okay, for instance, I'm the first batter. Uh -huh. First pitch is outside ball one. Second pitch is inside ball two. Then I wrap a base hit between second and third, and I'm on first. All right, sure, many games have started with two pitches that were balls, and then the third one being a base hit. Next guy comes up. He hits a foul ball into the seats. Then he hits a bouncer to shortstop who kicks it. It's an error. So you're, you're, you're already well, getting... Here's the thing. Okay. So um, let's just assume that baseball games are finite. Okay. That, may be, that might be the problem. So okay. is, it given, is there an absolute limit on the length of a baseball game? No. Well, okay. I okay. mean... Okay, 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 hang on. Okay, okay, okay. Because okay. okay, well, hang on. Let's just... Because okay. there's so no clock. The, that's the thing. So, okay. I mean, but in the terms, is there an absolute limit in the number of innings on a baseball game? You play nine, and then if you're tied, you play till one of the teams after the completion of an inning has won. Longest professional baseball game has been oh. about 28 innings. Yeah, there are infinitely many baseball games. Okay. All right. I'll concede it. You're looking all pleased. <laughs> I'm very saying. happy. Yes. Okay. Okay. I didn't mean for that example to take us all the way down that road. That's okay. <laughs> now what the hell were we talking about? Okay. We had we had just mentioned that uh, out of this oh, yeah, yeah. finite set. So okay. there's a finite set of instructions, but there are an infinite number of possible computer programs. Because but the instruction, you know, you might combine them in longer and longer lists. But there's only finitely many different kinds of things that can be strung together. You might wonder, you know, is there anything special about Turing machines per se? I mean, maybe, I mean, 
is that the only possible rock bottom simple model of computation? Not a chance. So many of our listeners uh, might be familiar with the game of life, with Conway's game of life, not the Milton Bradley right. game of life with the little cars, right? But the kind that makes a great screensaver. John Conway actually invented that specifically as another kind of model of computation. It's a very simple little game that um, you can do by hand and uh, actually, again, any computer program can be reduced to that. And there's lots and lots of other examples. In essence, any time, roughly speaking, and this is not completely perfectly true, but it's philosophically kind of right, any time you have a lot of little gadgets, say instructions or little... Um, maybe tiles on a tabletop or uh, chemicals, different kinds of chemicals or something like that, that lots of little tiny gadgets that can com combine in only very particular, highly restrained ways that nonetheless give ro rise to all sorts of possibilities. That's exactly when computation kicks in. That's exactly what the model, uh, rock bottom model of computation can be. Beautiful thing. We are surrounded by computation occurring all the time. And so the question of what can be computed and how complex computations can be is a question really about the natural world around us. It's astounding. For example? I mean, life itself. I mean, you and me and the plants and... We're all computations. In a certain sense, there are computation, there are chemical mm, aspects mm. of computation that are being carried out. We are constructed, clearly, through some sort of uh, procedural chemical process, right? And enzymes and proteins and so forth are combining in just the same kinds of ways that these instruction lists are. I want to just say one last thing. We'll come back to this another time, but um, how strange can a computation be? So here's a <laughs> simple way to put it. There's this great thing called the busy beaver problem. And you have to sort of say, okay, exactly what model of com computation we're talking about. Say the specifically what kind of Turing machines or are we talking about the game of life or something else. But it was a, originally phrased for a very specific notion of Turing machine, very specific instruction list and so on. And the question is, okay, if I'm allowed only, say, 10 instructions mm -hmm. and I want to make a dumb robot that, you know, does as much stuff as possible and then stops, um, how long can I make the thing run with just 10 instructions? Now you think about it, with just 10 instructions strung together, a list just 10 long, it doesn't seem like you can do very much. And yet, it's astounding. You can do, you can make a, a robot that basically wiggles around almost seemingly randomly, uh, behaving crazily, and then perhaps runs for thousands of, of turns. I don't have the exact um, numbers for the particular way we phrase the problem, but busy beaver, the, the amount of time that these busy beavers can run grows faster than any function that you can possibly compute. So for, um, say, 20 instructions, it's already going to be an astronomical number. Because it's exponential. It's, no, it's vastly faster than exponential. Wait, how can something be faster than yeah, exponential? See, it's faster than exponential to exponential. Exponential to the exponential to the exponential. Lots of next day we'll have to talk about next week, won't we? Okay, I guess so. Uh, all right. So, uh, so, so 10 instructions... Yeah, let's stick with that. I don't actually know the answer for this particular formulation. That's a good problem. With the 10 instructions we've talked about, move left, move right, uh, pick up a parachute, put down a parachute. If you're on a parachute, go to instruction, whatever. Mm -hmm. How long can you make a program run before it... Uh, 
well, why and, and go to instruction X. Why couldn't I just make instruction one go left forever? Ah, but see, then the catch is we also have to have one more instruction, which is if you're on instruction X, sorry, uh, instruction 10 has to be stop. Oh. So we want it to stop. So, okay. yeah, you're right. That's so exactly you've gotta, right. You want to yeah. go wiggle around for a very, very long time and then eventually stop. Okay. I have no idea how about, what the how about go the left. formulated it How is. about this? Go left till the Chicago Cubs win the World Series, then <laughs> stop. That's almost forever. Yeah, but it's not in our instruction. Okay. All right. I'm Goodman Strauss as a math professor at the University of Arkansas.